Hello, this is uh, Pastor Scott Kirkhoff here at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Osmond, Nebraska, as we begin our fourth lesson uh, on leadership and elders training for the church. Uh, again, the, the book that I'm using for this training is Where Everybody Knows Your Name, put out by uh, Dr. Marilyn Johns, uh, Best Practices in the Small Church. And the reason that I've used uh, this particular book is I feel that uh, Osmond, uh, Nebraska, even though we worship around an average of 175 people, we have a tendency to kind of operate into the small church model. So I think the material here is relevant. And, and I think it's really relevant for any size church, quite honestly. I think she's written a pretty good primer for, for anybody that's in a congregation that's wanting to understand how congregations function and what leadership and elders need to be focused upon. Again, I have my wife, Sonia, here as part of this lesson. I'll let her say hello. Hello, it's good to be here. And, and again, we're just kind of having a discussion as we, we work through this material. Uh, last lesson was on the value of small churches. And, and one thing I want to highlight from that lesson that I think is worth taking away and remembering is even if a church is is smaller and possibly even even declining in uh, numbers, it still needs to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom. So I think that the mandate for a church, any church, every church, uh, is to be increasing the kingdom of God, uh, even if they are numerically declining as a congregation. And that could be for several reasons. They could be in a rural area. Uh, they could be in a numerically declining area like the Midwest. Uh, so, so, so there you go. So I think they need to understand that. And Matthew 28 is our march, marching orders. I've come back to that again with new appreciation. You know, go and make disciples, discipling people, and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has command for us in a lifestyle. So that's how you make a disciple. You are, you are baptizing and you are teaching. So that should be a part of every congregation, large or small, uh, numerically increasing or numerically declining. That's what we're supposed to be doing, okay? So that was the, the value of small churches lesson number three, which was the second chapter. Now we're on to lesson number four, which is covering the third chapter, which is proclaiming uh, the good news. We're actually getting into the topic of worship. Okay, so worship is a an interesting topic to take on. It's, uh, it could be a controversial topic. Uh, it can produce a lot of passion on the part of people. Uh, but we'll just kind of work through some of the questions that I've gleaned through as we look at this chapter uh, inside the book. But before we begin that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask you to bless us. We thank you for the opportunity to learn and to lead and use us as your risen hands and feet, which is the church, until Jesus' second coming. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'll let Sonia ask the question, and then I'll try to respond to it, if that's okay. Fantastic. All right, number one. Where do most visitors and members get their regular connection to their church? Well, people get their regular connection uh, during worship. And, and that is traditionally on Sunday morning. Uh, so Sunday morning worship, we have one worship service at Emmanuel Osmond, which I appreciate because 
when you get into multiple services, particularly on Sunday morning, it cuts out the opportunity for the pastor to teach. And, and you know, I see Sunday morning as a package. I, I've always said it, it's worship, fellowship, and discipleship. You're waiting to get all three of those things, worship, fellowship, and discipleship. People will usually stay around for fellowship and discipleship, but if you worship um, after discipleship, they usually don't come. I think that is the secret. You want to create a, an overall experience. Uh, I gained that when I was in Hawaii, and I've never come off that model, and I never will. Um, I mean, ideally for me, it'd be a nine o'clock worship service, which is kind of the Goldilocks time. I call that Goldilocks. It's not too early or it's not too late. You know, people can still sleep in a little bit and, and then they can still have the rest of the day. I love that nine o'clock worship. But then, you know, you fellowship for a little while and then you roll into discipleship. And I think that's uh, been reflected uh, not only with, I think, the, the teaching that I've been doing at Emmanuel. Uh, but also, there's a convenience factor. You know, we're we're usually wrapped up by quarter till twelve, and so if you usually. know, and that and we worship at nine thirty. So so I'm really pressing a little bit to get that done. Uh, when we were at uh, Faith Lutheran in um, Kent, Ohio, it was nine o'clock worship, and really about eleven fifteen, eleven thirty, we were kind of wrapping it up. Really eleven thirty, that gave me a little more time to fellowship. That was almost perfect for me. But uh, we make it work, and, and I'm actually thankful for the 930 worship because if there's another congregation that needs me to cover for them on a Sunday morning, then they can have an 8 o'clock worship, and it doesn't interrupt, interrupt with what we're trying to do at Emmanuel. I think it's important for the pastor to teach. I think it's very important for the pastor to teach. Obviously, I'd like to see more in Sunday school with the kids, but at least we're having results with the adults, so I'll take a win. So yeah, most worshipers, uh, members, and visitors, they're going to get their regular connection to their church on, on Sunday morning. That's mostly what they're going to do. Okay, next question. Great. Number two. What does public worship do for the life and health of the congregation, and what is its goal? Well, it uplifts the congregation, and it helps the congregation to celebrate uh, their Christian life. Um, it's, it's that opportunity to, to come together and recharge their batteries or, or fill back up their, their gas tank of spirituality to get them through the week. Uh, devotions are great. Uh, they can be helpful. Um, I think that a, a small group or if you're a Bible study or if you're doing something online, that can be very productive. But public worship is important for the, the life and the health of the congregation. And let's... Take that to the third question because I think it ties in. Okay. Why is it important to have public worship and how has COVID changed the rules? Right. Okay. So I think that COVID hit the church really hard. And I think for congregations that were already um, struggling numerically, I think that it, it was really devastating. I think it really hurt like uh, faith in uh, Kent I mean, we were worshiping probably maybe average of 45 when I got there. Uh, COVID hit. We shut down. It was a, a fight to get that congregation to, to open back up because people were terrified of COVID. And then we got it done. And at best, I mean, we were worshiping maybe 25 to 30. 
We just lost people and they were gone. And we had several of them say, I'm not coming back. Don't just count me out. I'm not going to be back in public worship ever again. And I heard that from several people. So we lost a good 10 to 15 to 20 on average. Now that hasn't happened so much here at Emmanuel, but I think the average congregation, when I talk to the pastors down in um, Omaha, um, they're still recovering from COVID. Mm-hmm. It's changed the rules. And how people get worship or how they think they're going to get worship has changed. And we'll get into some of the online mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But online can supplement, but it should not be replacing public worship. We're still a word and sacrament people, and and you should be desiring to get that. So, yeah, COVID has really changed the rules for a while. Okay, and that leads into question number four that has multiple parts. How do the sacraments in the Lutheran Church influence our understanding of the gospel, confession and absolution, baptism, and communion? Okay, so for a Lutheran... Everything, we're grabbing on to the promises of God. That's what Lutherans do. It's not that our faith produces faith. It's not that our feelings produce faith. It's not that we have an emotional experience that determines whether or not God touched our lives or not. Uh, It is the promises that God has made to us. That's what it means to be a sacramental people. And so for us, that's going to be confession absolution. Because you confess your sins and the pastor is going to encourage you with the gospel. You know, he, he is encouraging with the gospel. That's the promise of forgiveness. Uh, baptism, um, when, uh, and again, that's Matthew 28, where, where God is making promises to you uh, in the covenant of baptism. And then also for communion. Whereas, uh, this is my body, this is my blood for you. So, so we grab onto the gospel through the sacraments. And, and when we tried as Lutherans to only get church uh, online, or if we're trying to get it through TV or even audio, then we're not a sacramental people. Mm-hmm. To be sacramental means to, to mean we, we stress the importance of public worship. And we can, um, we can supplement public worship with online or radio or audio or TV, that it cannot replace public worship. Sacramental people need to come together to receive those promises. Okay? All right, number five. What is the risk if someone does not regularly attend public worship? The risk is is they become more selfish in their sins. I've always defined um, original sin as radical selfishness. The problem with human beings is that when we are born, that we have a tendency to go radically selfish. You see it in children. Mine. This is mine. I don't want to share it. It's all about me. Um, Even as adults. Well, how come other people are not thinking about me? Well, they're sinful. They're thinking about themselves. So, So we don't love God. We don't love self. We don't love neighbor as thyself. We don't love nature. It all gets turned in on us. And, and I think that's the risk. So what happens is, is it's kind of like a compass. Our natural inclination is to turn towards radical selfishness. But whereas we have a magnetic north, which is the gospel, then what it's going to do is it should be uh, turning our attention 
away from a radical selfishness, hopefully towards loving God, loving self, loving neighbor as thyself, and loving nature. It helps us to, to continue to find that true magnetic north where we strive to be as human beings. So we can navigate life, as Jesus says we're supposed to navigate life. Without worship, then you're just pretty much pointing to self. And you'll become self-centered, self-destructive, narcissistic, any number of things. Right? And that breaks down what? Self, families, job. And then you'll sit there thinking, oh, woe is me. How come nobody's thinking about me? Because nobody thinks about you because they're sinful. Okay, so we, we, we play to our, our natural programming, which is unhealthy for us, which is sinful. Okay, number six. Why do different churches, churches, excuse me, have different styles of worship? Well, I think that um, there's not one style of worship that fits every church. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, you know, you have to worship liturgically. Now, there's a, a tradition that we have in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, which comes out of the Lutheran Church, which comes out of a European, even almost a Roman Catholic, which is connected to a Jewish concept of worship. Um, but nowhere is it mandated that you have to have this style of worship. That's not mandated. Um, I think it has to be uh, sacramental. I think it needs to honor the creeds. I think it needs to honor the gospel. It needs to honor the public reading of the, of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that are part of good worship, but it's not mandated. But with that said, I think that congregations have a tradition of worship, and you need to honor that worship as a pastor. You can make some changes, but, but I don't think you need to completely up in the apple cart. I don't think changing the worship is going to necessarily fix the church. Okay, we'll get a little bit more of that, but yeah, I don't. There's no one mandated style of worship. It just doesn't exist. Okay, that leads us into number seven. In all churches, why must the worship be intimate, storytelling, intergenerational, and using everyone's gifts and talents? Yeah, I, I like this little section where she said, well, we have a rock band, now we're going to grow, right? <laughs> I thought that was great. No, you're not. Um, she says that, that good worship uh, in, involves intimate relationships with people, uh, people are connecting to people. That's why I have people do hugs and handshakes at the very beginning of the service. Uh, you want to create that sense of intimacy. Uh, I love this idea of storytelling. You know, I know that I have a tendency sometimes to crack jokes or, you know, preach out of the pulpit, but that's all part of the storytelling model. And I try to do that uh, more and more. Look people in the eye. As one pastor said, if you can't remember your sermon, how do you expect other people to remember your sermon? <laughs> I thought that was a good point. Sometimes I preach without notes, and sometimes I even ask myself while I'm preaching, where is this going? Um, and then you go, oh, it goes towards the gospel. Um, that's where I need to be going. But I think storytelling is effective, and she actually um, highlights that. Uh, and and by, by the way, American preaching is an art form. There's an art form to American preaching. Uh, it's intergenerational. I like that. Um, it involves young and old, kids and elderly. You want both. Sometimes churches are geared just towards elderly, and sometimes they're just geared towards young families. And I think you want to in incorporate both into the worship. And then using you know, everyone's gifts and talents. And sometimes we don't do that enough. You know, don't 
undervalue the person that's ushering or the guy that rings the bell at the very beginning. I try to, I try to get to the ushers and tell them thank you at the very end of service when I, you know, when I, when I go out, when I recess out. The first thing I try to do is go around and shake their hands before, because they're going to usher everybody else out and tell them thank you. So I think it's um, thanking people, but getting people plugged in, giving people jobs on Sunday morning is very, very valuable. Um, multiplying, not just, you know, so greeters, ushers, musicians, elders, it's all, it's all important. Okay. Right. All right. Number eight, what are the advantages and disadvantages of using large screens and projectors during the worship service? Okay. Well, I actually like projectors because I think they do have a, a value. I think that what has changed is projectors are a lot like PowerPoint. You know, PowerPoint came out in the 1990s and people became in love with PowerPoint. And then they, they went so far over that they, they were reading the screen. Instead of owning the material, they just get up and, and read the screen. And I think that what's happened is in the last 10 years, as they've said, PowerPoint is there to supplement what you're saying, not to replace what you're saying. And I think that that's a good, that's a good standard, right? If we have projectors, if we have screens, they're there to uh, guide us in worship, but not control our worship. But remember, if technology fails, it's going to fail boldly. You know, yeah. that's the problem. If you're completely dependent on a projector and the projector goes down, which happened at Emmanuel recently, um, that can be a, a big change. So it can add convenience, it can th make things better, but it shouldn't replace. And a lot of pastors have become in love with you know, the PowerPoint. And again, I think it can supplement. I think a guy that does a good job with it is um, Bill Tucker out of Can uh, Concordia, San Antonio. I've noticed that that he does not preach with PowerPoint, but he will use pictures with the projector to make his points. And I think that's pretty good. So he's kind of a hybrid, and, and I can see where that, that goes. But you got to remember, you got somebody in the back who's got to run it for you. You know, you got to have that buttoned up before you get into worship. It's just one more piece of the pie that can go wrong. So there's a fine line in there. Okay. Okay, great. All right. Now our next question, we're specifically looking at page 42 in the book. It's question number nine. What must worship be authentic and relevant? Okay, so we're on page 42. Okay, so I've got uh, this section. This, this comes out of, out of a definition from the Presbyterian Church, um, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, Christian worship joyfully ascribes all praise and honor, glory and power to the triune God. In worship, the people of God acknowledge God present in the world and in their lives. As they respond to God's claim and redemptive action in Jesus Christ, believers are transformed and renewed. In worship, the faithful offer themselves to God and are equipped for God's service in the world. And I would say equipped for God's service in the world until his second coming. Mm -hmm. That's probably what I'd add to that. That's a pretty good definition. And I could break that down uh, quite a bit, but I think it, it 
describes it more than just simply being, you know, an emotional response, right? Or a style. It really gets down at the heart of the believer, the individual believer. Again, it's, it's inspiring you to be a Christian believer and to live out this Christian life. And I think that good worship, whether it's liturgical or not liturgical or contemporary or traditional worship or music, it should do that. Pastor's message should do that to some degree. So, yeah, I mean, I know guys that are out there that can read their sermons and they, they have a great manuscript, but um, that's not my style. But if that's how the church likes to worship, then amen. Do, do more of it. Okay. Next question. All right, number 10. Why is it good to be innovative with worship, and how can this be done? Uh, okay. Um, I, I One of the things that, that I would strive to do is, I, like the fifth Sunday of the month, you have four fifth Sundays of the month. You know, you know what do you do with the fifth? <laughs> um, there's a lot you can do. You can take the fifth if you don't want to, you know, give, <laughs> give the answer. You can drink a fifth. Um but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fifth Sunday. So I, I you can use it with uh, kids' worship. Um, you can give it to the teenagers. I was in a congregation that every fifth Sunday the teens uh, got involved and, and helped work with the liturgy. I thought that was really cool, like, if, you know, that kind of stuff. So so I, I think that there's a lot of different directions that you can go with it. Um also, with innovation, I think technology um, using, like recently, the, the kids went to the National Youth Gathering and they had a slideshow that they put together at the very end. The only thing that they missed on that was they should have had some music. That would have been nice. It was very silent. As people were, it, the music would have helped. But uh, again, that's good innovation. Okay, um, some people are gifted with um, drama. Um, you know, so that can be something. So there's a lot of different directions you can go with it. And yeah, music, using people's musical talents. And I think that your musical director um, should be striving to get people involved. I think that's really, really important. Okay, so innovation with worship. Yep. Looking at what you can do, not what you can't do. Okay, playing on that last <clears throat> phrase. Um, number 11, why is good music essential for good worship? And what about different musical styles? Right. Well, obviously, music moves the heart. Luther uh, says that. Luther says that the music's almost essential uh, to understanding the gospel or experiencing the gospel. He wrote hymns. Uh, a lot of people today don't play music anymore, but uh, music is essential for good worship, absolutely. It moves the heart of the beast, the human, the human creature. Next question. Well, does it matter about different musical styles? As long church? as it's done well. That's the thing. As long as it's done well. And if you're going to have a contemporary band, just again, understand, you might have five or six people that need to be there, and what if they're gone? What if they don't practice? What if it's second rate? You know, second rate music will kill you faster than having a praise band. If it's done well, that's that's what I look for. Okay. okay. So we have a few more musical questions. Um, number 12, how can different styles of music be introduced into public worship? Well, we've done that with All God's People Sing over the summer. And I think uh, getting, beginning to introduce some of those um, camp-type songs that we grew up with uh, that are good for kids. Um, you can go contemporary and use videos, but you got to be careful of copyright law. 
And the other part, too, is I think it can become too canned. Um, there might be a place to use that for maybe before confirmation or something like that, singing a contemporary song from a video. But during worship, it can go south on you real fast. Okay. Okay. 13. Why is it challenging to find good musicians? What makes a good musician? What about their talent and dependability? Okay. Um, it, it can be very challenging to find a good musician. But I will say from my personal experience, without getting too much into the rabbit hole with this one, is I would rather have them dependable and as a team than talented. I have run into some really egotistical uh, musicians who don't want to play nice with the pastor, and they're not dependable. And I've got stories to talk about that, but I'm not going to get into it. But dependability, are you working together as a team? The first thing I did when I got here is I turned to our music director and I said, you're sonatically trained. I'm not. I mean, I'm sonatically trained as a pastor. And I said, I'm going to empower you. You know, you're the musician. You know things. So and if, if you have a question, let me know. If something doesn't work, we'll talk about it. And if, thing, if something doesn't go right, we'll make it right. That's good leadership, in my opinion. Empowering people to do their job. Okay. Next question. All right. Question 14. What if you don't have any musicians in your church? Well, we went from cassettes to audio CDs. Now it's all streaming. Um, I know a lot of churches that are using this organ service where you literally just, they just literally just put it into your organ on Sunday morning and the guy plays it professionally. And that's worked out really well for small churches that can't find organs. So there's a lot of different options. And again, I know a lot of churches that are going to videos uh, during worship. I'm not a huge lover of that. Um, it's got its time and place. I'm not a big lover of it for Sunday worship. Uh, you know, like I said, maybe if it's a youth group or, you know, a small group or confirmation. But there's a lot of options today. Fifteen. Okay, fifteen. When making changes with the music, why is it important that it should be done slowly and intentionally? This will get you in uh, sideways with the congregation faster than anything else. If you're a young pastor and you're wanting to make changes in music, or if you're leaders and you're wanting to make changes with the worship, go slow. It's better to inch by inch, it's a, it's a cinch, right? But if you go by the mile, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be painful. Okay, good. Number 16, moving on to another area of worship. Why is functional worship space important? And how has the use of worship space changed over the years? Okay, well, this is something that I've mentioned since I got here is a lot of times people, it's, it's like, why is that still there? Well, it's always been there. Well, maybe the, the modern standard for uh, worship space is almost like an empty stage. Less is more. Clutter can, can clutter you up. It can hold you back. And so I think that, um, you know, if it's no longer being used, you might want to reallocate it. And I think that's something that, that needs to be discussed and looked at, um, especially with pews. I mean, pews are they're beautiful, but they're big, they're bulky, and they and you can't move them. And and so again, I'm a big believer in if you're going to have space, you want to and the size of the spacing for pews. Americans are older. A lot of them now are in canes and they're on crutches, or they're in a wheelchair, or they're just or 
we're bigger people now. Um, you know, we're just, we're, we, we've supersized ourselves in America. And so we like our space. We like to spread out. So the way that people worshipped 60 years ago has completely changed. You want nice flexibility and function, okay? That we kind of get into that. So, yeah, people just use space in a different way. Okay, we're going to move on to question number 17, and we're going to specifically refer to pages 50 and 51. And this is all pertaining to, is your worship accessible? And accessible means, can, can people function with it? So, questions to ask. Uh, could you find a parking space close to the building, right, if you're handicapped? Uh, could you tell which door to enter the worship? Was someone there to greet you at the door? Great question. Were you handed a bulletin or, well, we're kind of on a screen. Were you uh, shown your seat uh, when you came in? Uh, you know, again, were you handed a bulletin? Uh, was the, the, the bulletin clear as when to stand and when to sit? Well, I kind of cue people up with that, so I don't worry about it too much. Are you celebrating the Lord's Supper that day? Is it clear uh, who may partake of the meal? Of course, we use uh, Luther's three questions. I think that's the best way I've ever come up with it, instead of some wonky communion statement that people can't really understand. Um, if you get, uh, did you get lost uh, in any part of the service? Uh, was somebody there to help? Uh, were bulletin announcements clear for a visitor? I think so. We do it at the very end. Uh, were you greeted by several members uh, during the pass of the peace? That's hugging handshakes at the very begin, beginning. So that's why I do it there. And did anyone uh, talk to you at the coffee hour? Which, you know, kind of depends. But I will say one of the things that I do, and I hope that you know, people pick this up, is I do confession absolution before the opening hymn because I understand people might be running late. And that way it's easier to come in during the opening hymn after confession absolution because it's really rude to, to be coming in uh, when people are doing confession absolution. I think it's really an inappropriate time. And I picked that up from another church and I felt that was a good lesson. Yeah, and I've actually been locked out of a church at that time for running <laughs> late to church. You're stuck in the North Ends. Okay, <laughs> last two questions because we're, our time's running. Okay, next question. What impression do you think your church is currently giving with its public worship service? I think um, Emmanuel does a pretty good job, actually. And, and I know that it's a small, we're a small town. We're, we're a pretty good-sized Lutheran church in a small town. But I think we worship well. I really do. And I think they were worshiping well before I got here. I'd agree with that. I, that so I, I can't really take claim for that. I think I made some changes that tweaked it, um, but I didn't change a whole lot. Okay, 19. And finally, how do you know if people are not happy with the way the church is worshiping? Okay, I think either they're going to stop attending or, or they're going to let you know. I think that's going to happen. If something goes wrong... People are usually going to let you know. So, and, and sometimes what you don't hear is what you actually hear. So, if they're coming and they're not complaining, they're probably pretty happy. Okay? So, real quickly, um, just a couple of things that we take away from this lesson. Um, I'll, I'll do the first one. First one is um, public worship's essential. Even with after COVID, we've got to get back. We're a sacramental people, and uh, Lutherans get their understanding of the gospel through the sacraments. You can't be a Lutheran without being sacramental. Uh, second is style of worship is fine, but remember, is it is it intimate? Are the relationships in it? Storytelling, I thought that was a good point. You're telling the story. It's intergenerational, and it's 
striving to use uh, everybody's gifts and talents. And then finally, um, probably uh, number three, and I would probably say that um, when you're dealing with um, musicians, um, when you're dealing with people who lead worship, they've got to be a team. You, it's really painful. It's like trying to run the offense. If the quarterback can't depend upon the receiver to run the route to catch the ball, it's probably going to get intercepted. And, and so I'm just thankful that I have people that I can count on and that are dependable. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. It's lesson number four. Um, again, we're using Where Everybody Knows Your Name, uh, Dr. Marilyn Johns. I want to give credit to the one that we're gleaning the material from and don't want to infringe on any copyright laws. I did not create this material myself. I just gleaned it. And we will be getting into uh, the next lesson, which will be lesson number five, which will be going over chapter number four, which is telling the story, the importance ah, of Christian education. So I think that's a good topic that we'll discuss next time. Thank you very much for, uh, for listening.